Um, you may not have heard about this, but uh, about three weeks ago, uh, a, a church planter with the North American Mission Board died in a, uh, a really horrific uh, plane accident, uh, leaving behind you know, a wife, children. A week later, another plane crashes full of pastors from Memphis. Um, again, leaving behind spouses, friends, family. Tragic, tragic events. Uh, one of our uh, lay elders, it's not active right now uh, as an elder. He's kind of in, uh, he's, he stepped off, Brother Dave Patrick. I'm not sure if he's here or not. Uh, he recently, this past week, did a funeral. Uh, for a family who's, um, and, and by the way, there's somebody in our congregation that's connected to this family, so I'll uh, not use names, uh, but they asked us to pray for them, where this man murders his wife, takes his children hostage, murders his children when he finds out the police are after him, and then kills himself, leaving behind all kinds of, of ruin, heartache. I mean, uh, my, my, my son, and I, I was even thinking, what, Pierce Abercrombie right here, uh, they, their teacher at Creekside, about a month, two couple months back, uh, her, her husband passed away tragically because of a cardiac event in his sleep. Younger than I am. Healthy man. I played golf with him just a few months ago. Great man. Tragically dies, leaving behind a child and a pregnant wife. Ruin. Heartache. I mean, and I know there are people here in our faith family who've lost parents recently due to, like, unexpected things. This is the human experience. Devastating suffering. And we will all feel at some point or, or another, suffering is an inescapable part of our world. Suffering is not enjoyable. <laughs> uh, and it can involve conflict and pain and disappointment and discouragement, physical harm and frustration. Uh, we care about suffering because when it happens, we are consumed by it. I mean, think about it. Even the pain of a small tooth can consume your whole attention. Like, you, you can't think about anything else but that nagging, you know, persistent discomfort. It consumes us at times. Suffering and our lives can draw our whole perspective of life entirely inward on ourselves and our experiences. You know, distorting the understanding of the rest of life. And so, how, how are we to deal with suffering? You know, even those who have a firm grasp on the existence of God, of a good and gracious God, still struggle to process and think through this type of suffering, this type of grief, sorrow. Some people, you know, 
have the ability to just kind of shut it out. Uh, I once served as an army chaplain and I served with men who'd seen and experienced a lot of things and, and oftentimes they, they, they could shut it out. You know, they could shut out the, the trauma and the things that they had seen and experienced oftentimes for it to just really bubble up in their life later on. In their marriages and their jobs they tried to hold down disturbing relationships and, and work and so forth, right? And so those in this room uh, who are Christians, who are suffering, how are we to deal with it? This brings us to Job chapter 3. I don't know if you haven't been here over the last two weeks, uh, or three weeks, I, I guess. Uh, Job is a man who was holy, he was favored by God. He was loved and appreciated. And basically, Satan comes along and sort of is sort of appealing, even trying to twist uh, God into saying, hey, is, you know, uh, you know someone under d- duress, they, they would curse you. And, and, uh, and, Job, and God basically like teased Job up and says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Like, you know, do anything you want to him, and he's not going to curse me. Right? Looking into what's going to happen. And all, I mean, we're talking about the man who had, you know, thousands of thousands of acres of land, cattle. He literally owned all the Starbucks in the land, and all of it was taken from him. Right? Everything was taken from him. All of his kids, all of his possessions, everything robbed, taken from him. And we're going to see more taken from him as the weeks go on. But, but, but in this moment, Job chapter 3, um, where we find this is a real, uh, there's a real poetic theme that begins here in Job chapter 3. really extends throughout the entirety of the book of Job. This poetic conversation that re- revolves around Job. Uh, and uh, his friends, his wife, and, uh, and ultimately God. One commentator, you know, in, commenta- in, in sort of thinking through framing up the, so the overall tone of this uh, chapter, called it the most depressing chapter in all the Bible. But, but, but here, in the beginning, uh, we will see raw, human emotion recorded. You know, it will seem strange, honestly, to some, but I think for the Christian, uh, it's not that strange. Because according to the Bible, we know that we live in a cursed time. Uh, Ever since the fall, all of us bear the mark of sin and shame and guilt and pain and the consequences of all this death and suffering. And when we suffer or observe other people who suffer like Job, there are oftentimes a few questions that arise when we see or experience the kind of raw emotion Job is experiencing in this passage. As we navigate uh, this passage this morning, I want to seek to answer a couple of questions that may come to mind. At least they came up for me, and maybe I supply them to you, maybe you don't have these questions at all. And if so, then just humor me for a little while. Uh, but 
I pray that God will use our experience, even our, your most difficult experiences in life, to draw you closer to Him, to, to make you rely more and more profoundly upon His Word. So let's begin. And when you're looking here, by the way, at, uh, uh, at, at, this, at this chapter, there's a question I think primarily that, that we need to ask. And it is, was Job sinning in this? Well, let's look at that a little more closely. As we consider, as Job looks at the past and he actually curses the day of his birth. Job chapter 1. After this, by the way, speaking of the seven days, as, we, as Pastor John closed last week, uh, chapter 2, speaking of the seven days that his friends sat with him, and they didn't say anything, they just mourned, which was the standard practice uh, for mourning during this time. But it says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let, let the blackness of the day uh, terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let, let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let the night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. For those who, let those curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let me just stop there for a second. A lot of people wonder what he's talking about there. Leviathan. You know, what does he mean? Is he talking about a well? Is he talking about a dinosaur? Is he talking about a sea creature? What is it? Well, the basic line is we don't know. Um, beyond that, what we do know is that a Leviathan was a seven-headed dragon of chaos in Canaanite mythology. And what this dragon did was eat up the sun. And so uh, what Job is praying here, He's lamenting here that there's uh, uh, he's lamenting here that there's nothing to do that. He's wishing for something to come up and swallow up the day out of existence. He's saying, "I wish something had swallowed up the day, the way mythology said it did. Swallowed up the sun on my birthday." Anyways, verse nine: Let the stars of its dawn be dark; let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut out the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. It's interesting what Job is asking in these few verses. It's as if Job is wishing that creation would almost be reversed on the day of his birth. Wishing as if that day had never happened. In doing this, Job wasn't cursing God himself though he did seem to be cursing God's work. We normally celebrate our birthdays. Job here decries his own. 
And here, in the remaining verses, Job gives the reasoning for cursing that day, for uttering this kind of anti-creational prayer, asking for darkness to replace light. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and, and, and been quiet, I would have slept, and then uh, I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or, or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The taskmaster, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than, uh, more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, uh, and, are, and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden from God, has hedged, whom God has hedged in? For my, for my sighing comes instead of bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes to me, and what I dread befalls me, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. I mean, do you feel the weight of this passage? He wishes he had never been born. He regards the dead as having ceased from all trouble and oppression. He also regards the present moment in his life and, and, and who could not identify with him on some level, right, as being not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but, but trouble comes. You know, Job believes that having no life would be preferable to what he's experiencing right now, the pain and suffering and anguish and sorrow that he's experiencing right now. His existence in the world, uh, having come undone, he wants out. He wants it to be gone. And so what do, you, what do you think about what Job is saying here? You know, I have to ask, are some of you in such a place or a season in life? You know, when people come to church, almost never, uh, you know, they never really are what you see. You know, as a pastor, I long ago learned that, you know, the way people come, uh, the way people look uh, when they come to church has almost nothing to do with what really is going on in their life. Are you in such a situation today? Maybe you have conflict uh, with a coworker or a friend 
or a spouse that seems to never end. And, and, for, and, and for some reason, it just it goes to the core of your being. You don't even know why this is. You, you may not have all the trials Job has experienced in these first two chapters, yet still you have intense suffering. This type of intense lamenting that we often uh, times call depression, it knows no ethnic uh, or class or gender or age boundaries. We can all fall prey to this. What do you do when your husband or your wife is depressed? What do you do when your children or child is depressed? What do you do when your friend is depressed? Well, one, we love them. We pray that God would help them turn outward from themselves and, and upward to God. Pray that God would stir them. Pray that God would help them understand what's going on and, and start moving towards Him and, and, and to not give up. And I would say praise God for Job's friends. Uh, you know, and we're about to see in coming weeks all the stupid counsel that they gave. It's really a picture of what community is like, actually. No one's perfect, including the people who come to rescue you. But praise God for three friends who would come from outside, who would sit there for a week, not say anything, just listen to Job. But don't give up. Persevere in sharing with them this comfort of God's love for us in Christ uh, and the gospel. Now, I'll just say practically, if you have more questions in this, uh, you know, ask wise and godly friends. Uh, be honest about what's going on in your life. Talk, talk to the elders here. Uh, we can pray for you. We, we can help you. We have access to, to strong biblical counseling in this area. We would love to help you work through some of these things. I guess one basic question, though, that we need to ask here about Job is, was he sinning? Let me get more specific. Maybe this can help us a bit. Is it a sin to wish you had never been born? I would say, well, it, it depends. If it lasts and becomes a settled conclusion, then yes, that's a sin. But the mere fleeting thought that goes through your head and looks delicious to you in that moment of self-pity, well, that may be the result of sin, certainly. We definitely live in a fallen world. But the very temptation, I don't want to call sin. Though, as I mentioned, as a result of sin, it is certainly a result of sin, as this is the only, you know, this, this kind of thought, fleeting thought, can only happen in a fallen world. Is it a, it, but, but is it a sin to wish you were dead? And again, I would say to that, it depends. If it lasts, if it becomes a settled conclusion of yours, then, then yes, that is most certainly a sin. 
It is, in fact, a rejection of God and His good plan for you in His life. And as we've seen in this passage, it is possible to get so low that you have this fleeting thought of, I'd rather be dead than to endure this suffering. But Job did not take his life into his own hands. He recognized it was not his life to take. Instead, as we will see in the coming weeks, he eventually begins to take his eyes off himself and look to the Lord. And it's there he finds peace and refuge. But these words uh, by Job, they lead us to ask, is sadness or depression a sin? And again, I would say to that, it depends. Again, if you, if you give into it and adopt it as your worldview, then yes, that's a sin. You're going in rebellion against God, and, and what he says is true and right, and what he gives you is his goodness and kindness. It is a rejection of his goodness and kindness. But if you merely have the aptitude to be discouraged, be discouraged easily, then maybe it's the effects of sin, whether your own or someone else's around you. Uh, in and of itself, may not be sin, but certainly it leads you to condemn God if it leads you to condemn God, uh, or even failing to trust Him, then, then yes, that is sin. So church family, I was just say, as I was reflecting on these thoughts, these questions, I began to wonder, are we a church for the strong I mean, we have so many young people, so many people who have been to college, you know, gotten a good job, you know, um, you know uh, our social media accounts, you know, they're so tight and polished. Do we have a culture where it's okay to not be okay? How are we doing as a congregation reflecting, uh, and, and reflecting the image of Christ? Do we confess our sins to God openly and honestly to each other? Are we aware of our own need for God? Of, of how God uses us in our weakness and each other's lives? I do pray that God would forgive us for ways that we may have been self-contented and, and uninterested in those who, who are hurting around us. I pray that God would remind us that we all had hopelessly been lost apart from Jesus Christ. And we've gathered to, to praise Him today because we have realized that we have been uh, in, in all these situations of incredible need and weakness and even despair forever had it not been for Jesus Christ. And so God has come and found us. And my brother and sister, he did not find you in your strength. He found you in your weakness. And he loves you there. Surely if we are to show his image, that's how we too, we have to do that in this congregation. 
more often than not, the Lord meets us in our biblical community. If you are hurting today, I would say lean into biblical community. Share openly what's going on in your life. If you're here and you know someone that's hurting, then press in to their situation. Show them you love them. It may mean you sitting there and not saying a word. And this is something I've got to learn myself. Now this passage, though, I want to be clear, is not just some depressing rant or poem. It's far more than that. We need to recognize that this chapter of Job as a prayer to God. It is a prayer. And and what can we learn from this passage about prayer? And this immediately brings me to the one point I had this morning. One point. I'm not even Baptist this morning, okay? One point. We have a Savior who welcomes our unfiltered questions and laments in our prayers. He is a friend to those who are hurting and broken. You know, while there is probably way more I could and probably should say about this passage, I don't want you to miss this. The human experience brings a wide range of emotions. And there are times when things are going well and you, and you take them to the Lord, Lord joyfully And you say, praise you for your kindness and your goodness. Thank you for all the good gifts you've given me. And then there are times when life is not easy. It is painful. It is not joy-inducing. And in prayers like Job... The one he's praying here stands as a very intentional reminder to us that God is eager to listen to our difficult questions and anguishing emotions. This should, this should really bring us great hope, honestly. Because I realize more Americans and more Western Christians are diagnosed with what many have classified as this mental disorder of depression than, than any other like diagnosis in the world of psychology. And those numbers are going up. They're not coming down. Therefore, I don't think I'm going too far out on a limb by spending so much time thinking and talk about, talking about the visible signs of despair and potential depression that we see in this passage. If you're struggling with depression or if a loved one you know is struggling with depression uh, and you're wondering, how should I think about this in my own life? How should I respond to it in my own life? It's important for us to think about this as a Christian. And And it's so important for you to hear this because so many people wonder, if I'm a, if I'm depressed, can I still be faithful? The reality is, Job here is someone who has faith in God and he's being honest that he is in the bowels of depression. He's honest about that. And it's good for you 
Uh, it's good for me to know that, you can, that we, we can be honest about this as well in our prayers. Job 3, by the way, isn't the only place in the Bible that addresses this kind of raw human emotion. The words of Scripture uh, can give expression to your own struggle as you uh, confront this kind of sorrow. But the Bible, you know, isn't just honest in identification of the problem of sorrow. The Bible is also very honest about a response. And so I normally wouldn't do this in my sermons, but I think it might be a good idea this morning. So I'm actually going to ask you to leave Job chapter 3 and ask you to turn with me to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. And I'm not even including this in the slides, by the way. So it won't be up on the screen. Um, Because I didn't want this to seem like a second sermon. You know, uh, I, I'm not even going to, to read everything. However, I, I, I want to, to close with this, what I think is really practical and pastoral application. Uh, and this pastoral application of biblical counsel for those who are dealing with grief and sorrow and depression. In the 102nd Psalm, the psalmist gives us a very, very candid explanation of the kind of realities you struggle with in depression. He talks about feeling sorrowful because of the fleeting nature of life. He talks about uh, how literally his body hurts from so much anguish. So much so that in verse 4, he talks about not just his physical ache, but his spiritual ache, where he says, My heart is struck down like grass, and it has withered. He is honest in verse 4 that, his, that he's, he's so depressed. He, he's, he's not even eating. He, he groans. He, he can't sleep, verse 5. He's up at night with his sorrows. He's experiencing the cruelty of, uh, of other people. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Either sounds like Job or you're saying, that's kind of, that's me. However, after the psalmist lists all this uh, expression and this experience of sorrow, by the way, I was thinking about this, uh, like the highly respected theologian Carl Truman says, the psalmists move inward uh, to move outward. So they start here in order to move out. They don't just persist in this toxic introspection. They look outward to the Lord. He says in verse 12, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are reminded throughout all generations. He starts to think about God. He moves from his own experience, his own understanding of his own painful sorrow, and he stretches that pain out to the sovereign God who's enthroned forever. Indeed, he stretches his concerns out to what the nations should think about God. Verse 15, he says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear his glory, your glory. There's a powerful principle here. 
where the psalmist has moved from a very particular focus on his small existence, even in the midst of his very real pain, and he stretched and he stretched it out to the very large uh, vistas that include God himself and the nations over which he reigns as king. The psalmist looks to God in the midst of his pain, and he calls out to him. The superscript of the psalm, which is the text that's kind of right above what would be labeled as verse 1, right? Identifies, they normally identify some information about the psalm. The superscript of uh, Psalm 102 says, A prayer of one afflicted, when he is faint and pours out his complaints before the Lord. This is, this is a text that admits that this is a person who is afflicted, but he is not stopping at his own experience. He's pouring out his complaints before the Lord, and we don't, we don't have to just be honest with ourselves about the experience of our pain. This is an encouragement to be honest to the Lord about the experiences of our pain, what we're feeling. Verse 1 and 2 says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let me cry out, well, let, let, me, let me cry, come, come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day that I, when I call. It is so important to take our experience of pain and turn it into a call and request to God to come. Meet us. Because as soon as we start to call out to the Lord for help, this is the response of faith. It's a response of faith to say, Lord, I need you. Left to myself, I am in ruin. And I, 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 I can do nothing. Would you draw near to me? Here's the reality and the good news when the psalmist calls to God, God hears. Verse 18 says, let this be recorded for, generation, for, for a generation to come so that a, a people yet to be created may praise the Lord that he looked down from his holy height from heaven. From the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners to set free those who were do doomed to die. He's saying that the Lord who exists in heaven, who's on his throne, who reigns over the nations is is hearing the weak cry for help. And he listens. God cares. God is concerned to help. The note that the psalm ends on is not just that God hears, but that God helps. Verse 25 says, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. He again goes big. God who made the heavens and the earth, he, he never changes. Everything changes. Everything gets burned up. Everything except God. Well, I'm safe. I'm safe in the one who never changes. You are safe in the one who never changes. Verse 28 
reminds us that the children of your servants shall dwell secure. You who are sad, you who are depressed, your experience is real. You can be honest about that because the Bible is honest about that. You can turn to God because the psalmist gives a model of how to do that. Later on in this series, we'll see Job do this. But, but, you, but you can always have hope and know that your help is certain. Not because your problems aren't serious and not because you're, you're in you know, you're, you're, uh, you're such a great person. But because by faith, when you trust in the Lord, you will become secure in Him. You see, in Jesus, we just talked about this in a catechism. My son laughed because this is the same catechism we've been reciting as a family this past week. This is what sort of redeemers needed to bring us back to God. And then the next question is, was it necessary... Why is it necessary for that Savior to be truly man? Because we have a Savior who can identify with us in our weakness. Jesus in the garden, visibly afflicted, visible grief. But he doesn't dwell in sinful introspection. He turns his eyes to the Father and trusts that it will end with him being glorified. On the cross, he suffered for you and me so that, so that we can find hope in this broken mess of a world that we live in. So ultimately, the response to depression is not just to be honest about the experience, the way Job was, the way the psalmist was, but to be honest as we draw near to the Lord who alone can help you in that time. It doesn't mean that all of our problems will go away. It doesn't mean that things will immediately get better, which we will see is the case for Job. In fact, it gets a lot worse before it gets better. But it means that when your trust is in the Lord, even your pain begins to make sense. And there's hope in the midst of that pain. Romans 8 tells us that all things work together for good. It could be cancer. It could be the death of a spouse. It could be the severance of a marriage. I don't know. But I do know this, you and I, we live in a sin-cursed world, and you may experience one type of pain, I will experience another type of pain, and until Jesus comes back, which, again, this is a good reminder, when we pray, we can say, Jesus, come back. We don't have to pray prayers like Job, it says, can you erase my birth date from the calendar? We can say, Lord, come quickly. We need you. We have this good news to rest in. And you have a Father in heaven 
who's eager to listen to your pains, to your struggles, don't forget that. Don't forget it. Let's pray.